Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Chris Carey for a conversation about the legendary Battle of Thermopylae, a battle that took place in the 5th century BCE in Greece. On one hand, a very large Persian army. On the other hand, a heavily outnumbered Greek army. And this battle lives on famously in history, in fictional accounts, in retelling of the story, and has really captured the interests and imagination of many scholars in the public for eons. Dr. Carey is Emeritus Professor of Greek University College London in the UK. His research interest is Greek literature, especially Greek poetry, oratory, and drama. He's the author of many publications, including a couple books as examples. Thermopylae, Great Battles, which was published by Oxford University Press and Democracy in Classical Athens, which was published by Bloomsbury. Welcome to the call, Chris. Thank you very much, Andrew. All right. Uh, so it's great to have you on the call. We're chatting about the Battle of Thermopylae uh, today. Um, so let's start with more of a broad um, question to create context and background for this conversation. Can, can you share uh, more in a summary fashion, and then we'll work, work our way into the details more. What, what was the Battle of Thermopylae? Well, essentially, uh, what you have is a massive Persian invasion army uh, rolling south through Greece. The Persians are at this stage the dominant regional power. They rule the whole of the world from the coast of what is now Turkey as far as the Hindu Kush. So right the way through the Middle East uh, and into the East. Uh, tremendously powerful. And they have spent the last uh, 100 years uh, relentlessly expanding bit by bit. There's been friction between Greece and Persia for quite some time. And the Persians, having already invaded Greece 10 years before and been defeated, decided they wanted to come for a return match. And this time it was serious. So they had a massive army that seemed unstoppable uh, until they got to Thermopylae. Um, size of the two armies, there's a lot of dispute, but the army that faced them at Thermopylae was outnumbered probably at least 10 to 1, and possibly uh, even more. And they managed for three days to um, fight the Persians to a standstill because of their clever choice of position uh, and their superior fighting power within that position uh, until eventually they were betrayed, surrounded uh, and uh, massacred. So it's got drama, it's got David and Goliath, um, it's got um, massive courage against the odds. Uh, people are prepared to stand and die for um, their freedom. So all of that makes it uh, an iconic uh, battle, uh, which has remained so right the way through into this millennium. Yeah, and you still in um, fictional accounts and in inside of an entertainment context, you see certain things get published about the battle. Maybe not called this battle itself, but you can you can tell there it's being tied to the the battle. So I think it's captured a lot of people's interests over the yes, years. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I'll probably ask some some uh, uh, questions generally at some point if we have some time about. Uh, uh, you know the what you what you believe sort of the the the, the veracity. We'll we'll get into the battle. We'll we'll get into the details, yeah, sure. and I think some of that will just kind of get squeezed out. Okay, so the Persians um, 
fought the Greeks about 10 years before you, you said, yep. can you summarize that? Cause this, a conversation isn't about that particular war, but I think that, uh, creates, uh, there's antecedents there for this, um, yeah. battle itself. Can you summarize then how that last war about a decade, uh, previous kind of wrapped up and, and why you believe based on your research, and this might be partly interpretive, why you, why the Persians felt, uh, why they had the desire to go and try to invade and conquer Greece after sure. um, losing in that uh, war yeah. 10 years before. Yeah. Well, in the century before, in the 6th century BC, the Persians had taken over the, uh, the west coast of Asia Minor. And there were a lot of Greek cities, lots of Greek colonies on that coast. Um, they rebelled in 499 BC, and the Athenians uh, sent um, a small flotilla of ships to help them. Uh, it was to punish the Athenians for stepping out of their, um, their place that the Persians sent a force by sea to Marathon. And Marathon is part of the territory of, uh, of the city of Athens. And they sent uh, <clears throat> an expeditionary force, which landed, uh, which um, again outnumbered the Athenians quite dramatically. But the Athenians managed to defeat them, uh, and they sent them running to the running to the sea. The, the Persians could have left it there, but I think there is a policy issue that the Greeks have acquiesced in the fact that the Persians control all of these eastern Greek cities for. Um, at least half a century, probably more. And one thing that Persia doesn't want is Greece interfering in its sphere of influence. So having been defeated at Marathon, they decide that they're going to come back in real force. But what happens this time is they escalate it. Uh, they, uh, instead of just coming by sea, they send a huge fleet and a huge army. So it's an amphibious invasion. And um, it is on a much more um, uh, vast scale and you can see that what they have decided to do is not merely to punish the Greeks but to annex Greece and add it to the, the Persian Empire and of course what Herodotus claims is that the Persians have designs beyond Greece that they would like to go for the rest of Europe and I think it's very unlikely that they were planning to take over Europe at that point but the Persians had spent a hundred years just, just sort of gradually extending their power. And so if they had taken Greece, they might well have decided that there were other parts of Europe which influenced them uh, as well. But I think there are both, there are policy issues about defending their empire. And I think there are also expansionist ambitions. So some of it, I think, is just um, accidents and some of it is design. Okay. Um... What do scholars call at this point in time, because per Persia uh, was a big empire, what do scholars call the empire? Do they call it Persia? Was there a particular dynasty at that point in time in Persia? The, um, uh, the, the Greeks tend to call it just the, uh, the, the uh, call them just the Persians. So the Persian, and most moderns refer to it as the Persian empire. But the ruling family, the Achaemenid family, um, uh, have um, established um, a very firm control over uh, Persia itself and over the Persian Empire. <clears throat> Firstly, under um, a remarkable warrior called Darius, 
who was the father of Xerxes, who invaded invaded Greece. But you have this family which is um, at the heart of the Persian Empire. And of course, what it means is that the empire is a kind of expression of the king's will. And if you look at the inscriptions in which Darius uh, or Xerxes talk about themselves, and there are some wonderful inscriptions, it is as though um, everything emanates from the from the king. They have these wonderful inscriptions which say, Darius the king says, and then he describes his uh, his great achievements, and everything that the king wants happens. So in the first war, uh, Darius is ruling the yeah. the empire, um, yeah. but it's but it's not him in this in this particular battle. Can you speak more about about that? Who's yeah. who's leading the yeah. empire at that point? Darius always meant to come back after the Battle of Marathon, after the defeat in 490 BC. It was an important part of his plan that he would go back and and either punish or either just punish or take over Greece. But Darius died um, not long before the uh, before um, 480 BC, and um, his his son Xerxes decides to continue his father's mission. And you can see all sorts of reasons why Xerxes would want to do that. Um, it's important for him to be seen to be a continuation of his father because he wasn't uncontested as king. There were other claimants to the throne. Uh, he was Darius's personal choice, but he wasn't the inevitable king. And so the more he can do to present himself as a kind of continuation of Darius, the better it is for, for Xerxes. He also, I think, needs to add um, conquest to his CV. Uh, like everyone, he needs to be seen to make a difference. Any CEO needs mm -hmm. to uh, mm -hmm. needs to add something to the portfolio. So he um, uh, he needs to be seen to be his father's match when it comes to warfare. Uh, and so, conquest, warfare, um, uh, make him the, the continuation of his his father. And possibly a bit more, because, of course, his father tried to punish the Greeks and failed. So if Xerxes um, can um, defeat the Greeks, then I think what it gives him is the win-win. It makes him uh, the, um, uh, the devoted son who continues his father's work. Mm. But at the same time, of course, it makes him the man who achieved something that even the great Darius could not achieve. So there are all sorts of reasons, I think, why Xerxes takes over Darius's project. <clears throat> but Darius, uh, Darius had always meant to do this. There's a wonderful story in Herodotus after the Battle of Marathon that um, Xerxes um, says, who are the Athenians when they defeat his army? And he takes his bow and fires an arrow into the air. And he says to his servant, um, remind me three times a day. Uh, at meals about the Athenians. Mm. So this servant's job is to say, sire, remember the Athenians. Like so many of these stories, you know, I, I, I wouldn't sell it as gold, but it's a beautiful story. And it does, of course, tell a truth in that it says that this mattered to Darius. He didn't like having his nose put out of joint by this very small city on the edge of his world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to link it, link the, the battles um, for 
uh, someone that be might be completely new to this topic, the Battle of Marathon was in the First War, right? The one that occurred yeah, 10 right, years before. Yeah. yeah. And Thermopylae is the first encounter in the Second War. The Second War lasts from 480 BC to 479. That's how long the Persians are in Greece invading. Uh, and Thermopylae is the very first encounter. So it's it's a bloodless advance until the Persians meet the Greeks at Thermopylae. Yeah, I find... Um, when you're looking at history, it's 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 in it's. I find it interesting when you see a, a new ruler who comes after a ruler who had so much success, gaining so much territory, and what their response is to that. Because not everybody takes the response that they need to then try to outdo the the predecessor. I think of like um, uh, like tra like tra uh, Trajan's uh, pr um, su successor, Hadrian. For instance, in yeah. the the Roman Empire, where he kind of took he he didn't try to do that, right? He more st yeah. stabilized the empire. Yeah. But but here you're saying this is a case where it looks like Xerxes uh, wants to expand uh, even further what his uh, father was uh, able to to do and yeah. had and had started. Yeah, very much so. And um, uh, of course, the, the Persians. It's not merely about power. It's all also about uh, about income. Because they um, they impose tribute on their uh, their empire, so of course there is also a, a, a flow of um, a flow of money plus of course trade, so all sorts of opportunities that make it worthwhile pushing onwards. Okay, um, what do scholars know about the composition in terms of the type of uh, people that were on both sides of the of the uh, armies? It's. It's quite difficult to get a real handle on both on the composition and on the scale. Um, the scale is a really big problem. And it's almost one of those ones where you blindfold yourself, stick a pin in a piece of paper and you'll, you'll, you'll get close to a number that works for you. Um, uh, the, there was a, immediately after the Battle of um, Thermopylae, the, um, uh, the Southern Greeks put um, uh, an inscription on the site to mark the battle and they said uh, here against three million Persians fought four thousand men from the Peloponnese that is from from southern Greece so already by the 470s a few years after the battle the number has become absolutely colossal mm. uh, that's about half the size of the D-Day landings just to give you a sense of you know what you're looking at it's enormous right. and um by the time, uh, Herodotus is not one just to sort of take the arithmetic he's given, um, but even he wrestles with it uh, uh, to try to bring it down, and he ends up with something like a million seven hundred thousand in the infantry. You can't believe that a small country like Greece could sustain an invasion force on that uh, on that scale, uh, but scholars struggle to come up with a, a better number. Most of them end up with something like 200,000 for the Persian army. If that's true, it would be the biggest single army that had ever been seen in Greece at that time. Mm. Even if you cut it in two and give them 100,000, that's still much bigger than anything that the Greeks had seen. So whatever scale you, you, you give it, it is unprecedented uh, as, a, as a force on the Greek peninsula. As to the composition, Herodotus has a beautiful catalogue, a really exotic catalogue 
of, of people from all over the Persian Empire. So he has, um, he has people from Africa in skins. Uh, he has all sorts of exotic outfits from all over the, the Persian Empire. And um, uh, it's an odd fact that when you get to the account of the, um, the fighting, and in fact, when you get um, Greek artistic impressions of the, of the fighting, you never see these exotic armies you know, camels and chariots and so forth. So, so we can't be absolutely sure how many racers actually uh, uh, actually fought. Probably most of the fighting was done by the the Iranians, the Persians, the Medes, the Scythians, uh, and, and any of these contingents. I think were probably quite small. The on the other hand, the Greeks, it's quite difficult to get a a, a good fix on the composition there. We know that. There were relatively few um, Greeks from the vicinity. A large chunk of the army came from the south, uh, and they were led by the Spartans. Um, the best guess is that there were about 7,000 Greeks in the pass. One has to guess because Herodotus gives numbers for most of the contingents, and then when it comes to the people of Phocis who are on the doorstep of Thermopylae, he just says, all of them. And so, you know, all of them then becomes how many do you think that they could they could put into the into the field so uh so it's quite difficult to get a firm figure but most people would um suggest that it's about what would agree that it's somewhere around seven thousand which isn't of course the number that we think of we think of 300 if you think of the uh, the movies on uh, on thermopylae they all have these 300 spartans mm -hmm. And everyone else sort of fades into soft focus or just disappears from the narrative altogether. And there are the Spartans, full frontal, uh, facing the, the might of, of Persia with just 300 of them. And that's just one of the many ways in which it's difficult to get a, a handle on what's going on. So you've kind of uh, nicely addressed sort of my, my uh, part of my question at the start. So, so I think that's, that's great. Um, all right. So is there... Is there enough evidence that scholars are confident then that this wasn't only um, uh, uh, an army based in the Spartan, Spartan region, but that there was um, uh, at other regions of, of Greece, at least, was supportive as well? Can you speak more about that? Because that's kind of one of the things I'm getting at with the composition, because yeah. oftentimes... Um, and if this occurred in, in Sparta, give you know all credit where credit's due. So it's not about that. But what I'm trying to understand is, um, was other regions of Greece also part of this battle? Yeah. There are, as I said, there, there is a large chunk from uh, maybe 4,000 from, or, or near enough 4,000 from, from the south of Greece. Uh, lots of them for, are from Arcadia. Uh, uh, not many of them from the other the other cities in the south of Greece, and there may be a partly religious reason for that, because there is a big Dorian festival taking place around the time of the battle, and these states tend to be quite reluctant to move an army during a religious festival, uh, because they don't like to offend the gods, and that's why the Spartans don't turn out in full force. Um, they have a festival called the Carnea, and the Spartans would rather not fight if there's any way of avoiding fighting it's not that they lack courage they just do not wish to 
interrupt a religious festival. But probably, um, as I say, about about 4,000 from the south, and then maybe another 3,000 from central Greece. So that would be Greece north of the uh, north of the Isthmus of Corinth. Uh, um, it would be the Thebans, the Phocians, the Locrians. Uh, these are all sort of less well known um, to modern readers um, uh, as against historians. But we also have as well uh, a, a, a fleet in the field. And so what the Greeks have done is they've, they park their army in this narrow pass at Thermopylae where the Persians, the Persians have got to go through but the, uh, the army is stuck like a cork in a bottle and it's very difficult to shake them loose. At the same time, just to the east, there is a very narrow strait of water and the Greeks park their fleet there. But that fleet has, um, uh, has tens of thousands of uh, sailors uh, and fighting men in it from, uh, again, from the south of Greece, from central Greece. So it's not just a Spartan endeavor. Um, it has holes in it. It's Apache, uh, Apache uh, resistance because the, the Greeks have spent so long trying to kill each other that they really struggled to, um, to band together and start killing uh, outsiders. And there were, there were a number of Greek states who just sat on their hands and decided not to join. But it's anything but a Spartan, uh, a Spartan operation. There is a lot of support from the, uh, the rest, of, rest of Greece. The Spartans have to uh, field this army because the states of Greece are going down like dominoes. As the Persians roll forward, um, they don't even need to conquer the states. The states just um, they want, what they do is they give uh, they give earth and water, which is the way you signal to the Persians that you accept their superiority. <laughs> and all these states are joining the Persian side. So if they don't stop them here, the army is going to roll right the way down through through Greece. But um, there is, as I say, there is a substantial support from Athens, uh, from Corinth, from Aegina, from a lot of the Greek states, both in the, in the fleet, and mainly in the fleet, and then in this small army in the past. Um, is there uh, writings that's been left over to know about if there was one general that was responsible for leading on the Greek, and you can answer it too on the Persian side if, if uh, that documentation is there as, as well. Um, so is there anything that, that pertains to the, to the leadership in terms of um, who it was, if we, if we know, yeah. um, but also yeah. the type of um, uh, structure of leadership? Was it, was it one person? Was it a committee that, that was making these kinds of decisions, etc.? No, the, the, the senior command, both in the army and the fleet, is Spartan. And that reflects partly the fact that the Spartans called the expedition, but also the fact that the Spartans are the dominant military power in Greece at this stage. They can also, because they, uh, they, they um, are the dominant, uh, they, they have a large league in southern Greece, so they can turn out not just the Spartans, but thousands of people from the, from the south. So the Spartans <clears throat> have to be the uh, the senior command, but this is um, this is an allied army, and so the Spartan general Leonidas um, cannot just tell people what to do. He has to negotiate with the uh, leaders of the 
the local contingents. Uh, actually, Herodotus tells us very little about the leaders of these local contingents because for him, it's Leonidas who is the, uh, who is the focus of attention. Thermopylae is his achievement. And so he tells us less about the others. But, um, but Leonidas at every stage has to negotiate with, with other allied generals as in any, any uh, allied army. Uh, and of course, eventually, when the Persians surround them, they have to negotiate about what they do. Do they stay and fight? Do some people leave? So all of these major steps have to, um, have to be negotiated. Even in fact, when they arrive, they arrive there before the Persians. And then they start to see the Persians flooding down into the Malian plain opposite them. And the Persians just keep coming and coming and coming. And the Greeks, they're, they're sensible men. They don't really want to die. And so they, um, uh, some of them uh, are very keen to uh, abandon the pass and to move to the south of Greece and look for a more defensible position there. And Leonidas has to debate this with all of the forces. And eventually, uh, it's his casting vote that decides it because of his personal prestige. But that's why they stay in the end. But there are some who would cheerfully have marched away. When, uh, when you speak about uh, Greek generals or uh, or Greek kings uh, negotiating with each other it brings me back to the Iliad when you when you yes. <laughs> right when you have these different Greek uh, kings providing winged words so they're really working on winged yeah. words with each other. <laughs> yeah. 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 But there is an awful lot of negotiation that goes on. Okay, um, a few minutes ago you started to describe the terrain a bit, and I want to I want to go to that now. So can yeah. you can you uh, describe for everyone on a map? where this battle would have taken place, generally speaking, just so, so everyone can kind of visualize it. And then can you speak more about the actual uh, terrain uh, that existed uh, during the battle? Yeah, this is about, it's about halfway down the Greek peninsula. Uh, and there is a large, a large bay uh, that opens, opens up, uh, more or less opposite the island of, uh, of what is now called Edia. Uh, the island of Euboea, and <clears throat> there is a—it's um, a very mountainous region. As you, um, as you even now, as you drive down through Thessaly, and see the position, the mountains of Thermopylae facing you, it's like looking at a wall. It looks really intimidating, and uh, it looks as though the, the whole region is is totally impassable, and it's actually quite difficult to go south from Thermopylae. You can take a longer route by going east, but it is a longer route, and it's not as convenient a route. Or you can go through Thermopylae itself. And most people moving between north and south always chose to, uh, to go through Thermopylae. And in fact, if you go there now, the railway goes there, the, the, the big highway goes there. That's how you move between uh, north and south Greece. So <clears throat> you've got this this mountainous region, and then there is a narrow pass um, right next to the sea. The hills descend very steeply to the sea, and the road becomes very narrow. It narrows from, uh, you know, a, a, a decent width where you could move an army to what Herodotus calls um, a cart track. And there's a lot of good work being done on Greek cart tracks. Uh, particularly in military and, and road building, uh, road archaeology contexts. And they are, um, 
at their widest, they're probably about um, about 15 meters wide. And at their narrowest, they can be about two meters wide. And so what you've got is this narrow pass where to get into it, you're, um, uh, you're basically moving through a, a narrow entrance. Uh, and then to get out of it at the far end, you've got another narrow entrance and it widens in the middle. And if you can put people in the middle there, it's very, very difficult for a large army to occupy the space. It's great terrain for a small army. Uh, you can't really get big forces in there. So it's a great position for stopping the Persians. Um, it means that the Persians, because, of the, because it's so hilly, the Persians can't use their cavalry. Um, because it's so narrow, they can't use their archers. <clears throat> and the Persian archers are, they are a superb fighting machine. The Persian um, fighting technique is basically to hammer your enemy with arrows until they break and then move in for the, for the kill. In a narrow space like this, you're as likely to kill your own people as the, uh, as the enemy. And so you can't you deploy your, your archers. And what you also can't do, of course, is you can't um, uh, extend your army over a wide front. And it means, therefore, that the Persians, although they outnumber the Greeks, maybe 10 to 1, maybe more, they cannot deploy on a wider front front than the Greeks. So the smaller Greek numbers um, uh, are more or less equal uh, um, to, the, to the Persians within that terrain. So it's a great location for doing precisely what the Greeks wanted to do, which is to stop a big army from, uh, from moving south. Okay, um, so that's a good segue. Can you speak more about what's known about the battle itself? And if, and if possible in your answer, can you uh, address if, if there was around, and I know that these numbers can vary, but if there were around 200,000 uh, Persian fighters and 7,000 Greek fighters, yep. and this goes on a, f a few days, um, if, if you could address, even if it's interpretive, why, why the Persian army at some point said, let's just like pause this thing and, and maybe come, you know, go around or come back another day. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is that the Greeks chose their position very, very well. <clears throat> and it's an interesting fact that for centuries after, people tended to choose this location for, for stopping a north-south north movement. The, um, the Persians have a large army. They're numerically superior, but they're now some way beyond their supply dumps. And so they must be relying on uh, locals to provision them. And of course, that's provision them, provision their cavalry, all of the baggage animals, all of the camp followers. It's an enormous force because if you assume, let's say assume 200,000, you have to double it because someone has to look after your animals, someone has to cook for you, someone has to mend the wheels. So it's a vast number of people. <clears throat> they all have to eat, they all have to drink. Uh, and um, uh, they're occupying a space where it's going to get more and more difficult for them to provision themselves. So I think, um, and not everyone would agree with this, but I think that they really do feel under pressure of time. And that's one reason why I think they, they decide to fight on a terrain that's just so much more favorable to the enemy. I think the other thing is that they, 
I don't think they believe, Herodotus says this, and, um, and I think he's right, I don't think they believe that the Greeks will just stay and fight. I think they figure that any sensible person seeing 200,000 Persians descend on them will decide that they would rather be somewhere else. And uh, I don't think they were prepared for that, that digging in. <clears throat> but they, um, I think they needed to move quickly. And I think they felt that numbers would carry the day. And so they throw these numbers into the, into the pass. But the Greeks, of course, their, um, their experiences in fighting the kind of warfare that this terrain is good for. It's heavy armed soldiers with a breastplate, with um, shin guards, with a large round shield, heavy round shield and a spear. And they can basically just crouch behind the shield. Plus, of course, they have a, a bronze helmet. So they're really well equipped for what's basically a slugging match. And um, the Persians have, um, they have large wicker shields, which are not meant for clash. What they do is they, they tend to lock their shields together to make a barrier. The archers will fire over the, over the heads of the, the shield bearers, break the enemy, and then they, they advance. So they're not so good at that sort of straight, hard, slugging clash of, um, <clears throat> of heavy armed soldiers. And of course, because the Greeks um, are deployed on a narrow front, they don't get exhausted because they can fight in relays. And so <clears throat> while one, one contingent is fighting the Persians, the others can, can take a break. And obviously fighting over three, three days is phenomenally exhausting, but they, um, uh, they can at least um, sustain that because they're not having every man facing the Persians at the, at the same time. So all sorts of ways in which the terrain plus the equipment um, favors the, the Greeks. The Greeks themselves say that they also had longer spears, and there are, you know, there are gallons of ink which have been spilled trying to answer the question, did they or did they not have longer spears? And if they were longer, how much longer were they? Mm -hmm. But I, I take the view that even if you say have a, a spear which is six, inch long, six inches longer, if you have those massed in hundreds across, it really extends your reach and makes your enemy vulnerable. So all sorts of things with reference to fighting style, equipment, um, and I think above all sheer determination that, um, uh, that carries, them, carries them on. Um, and I think the determination is, is an important part of it. They all want to stop the Persians if they can from getting further south. Did they fight at night? Uh, no, it looks as though they. Um, it looks as though there was a gentleman's agreement that um, once you uh, <clears throat> once you get to the to, to the end of the day, of course, it's terribly difficult fighting at night, and uh, you know you're as likely to to kill your best friend as you are to kill the enemy, and so the Persians just withdraw at the end of each day. But according to Herodotus, they withdraw with with really big losses. He gives a figure, I think, of about twenty thousand lost. And I think that's an exaggeration because the whole thing is surrounded by exaggeration. But they, they did take, I think, severe losses and they also lost some really good troops. Um, they had a, um, a, a, a corps called the Immortals and they were the crack troops. There were 10,000 of them. And at one stage on the first two days, Xerxes sent the Immortals in. And the presumption was presumably that no one can withstand the Immortals. But they too are, are thrown back with heavy, heavy casualties. Uh, 
So I think um, uh, I think the losses are very considerable. Not enough to break the army, but I think enough to dent morale. Was Xerxes believed to have been there? Yes, he. Uh, <clears throat> um, I'm glad you asked the question because it shows you how much this meant to Xerxes. Um, it took him about a year to get there. Um, because um, they, they overwintered the year before on the um, west coast of, uh, of Turkey. It took him the best part of the year to get there, and he led the army himself. And of course, if you are the ruler of an empire that is kept in place partly by force, you're taking quite a big risk in, uh, uh, in um, uh, abandoning it, sorry, in departing from it, and because uh, you don't know what's going to happen in your absence. Uh, but it, it shows, I think, how important it was for him to be seen to be at the head of this, this army. The actual generalship was done by um, a small committee of, uh, of Persian, uh, Persian generals. <clears throat> but one assumes that ultimately it's the king's will which um, carries the day. And people can present their opinions, but eventually it, it will be the king who decides. Herodotus has, um, has Xerxes watch the battle full of confidence and then leap up in fear as he uh, as he sees his crack troops being thrown back with heavy losses and again i think that's just another one of these these myths but as always these myths have an element of real truth and i think the real truth at the heart of that myth is that this was a shock that that this shouldn't have happened and uh, that they should never have found themselves in uh, in this position uh, and i think it reflects the sheer surprise uh, that the Persians uh, found. What happens at the uh, end of the battle then? What do we know about it wrapping up? <clears throat> the, it looks when you, when you approach Thermopylae from the north, it looks, as I said, as though there's a wall. But mountain ranges always have passes. You just need to be able to find your way into the, uh, in, into the hills. It's not very easy to find your way into the hills. Uh, around Thermopylae, but there are, you know, there were goat tracks, uh, routes used by uh, by people for individual travel and so forth. And um, the Persians, I think, the Persians must have been looking for a way round from the beginning, because it's the classic manoeuvre. If you have, if you're being stopped in the mountains, you look for a pass that will take you to the rear of the enemy. So I think they must have been looking. But the Greek story is that there was a man, a local man named Ephialtes, who, um, who volunteered to lead them through the, uh, through the hills to get behind the, uh, the Greek position. Mm. I've always, always wondered what is meant by volunteered, because if the Persians are suggesting to you that you might want to help them, <clears throat> volunteering might take a rather, a rather robust form, I, I think. The questions are unlikely mm. to be gentle. There are no Geneva Conventions. So, um, uh, but whatever it is, the, the, the Greeks believe that this one man uh, led the, um, the Persians through the hills and they set off at night, they set off uh, at dusk, uh, Herodotus says, just as the lamps were being lit and they went on a night march through the hills uh, and uh, came down behind the, um, uh, the Greek position. Um, we're told very little about the night march. I, 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 I assume that they must have had lots of broken legs. I've walked the route myself, hmm. and um, it's uneven, like all mountain passes. And uh, people must have, uh, have got injured on the way, but no one is interested in those injuries on, on routes. All we're told is they march through. 
the Greeks <clears throat> had prepared for just this eventuality. Leonidas put a thousand Phocians, people from the vicinity, on that, um, uh, on that route specifically to stop the Persians. And it looks as though they were caught by surprise. They shouldn't have been. They only had one job to do, be on guard on that route. And they, weren't, they didn't have their weapons when the Persians appeared. There were 10,000 Persians, perhaps. We're not sure, but it was the immortals. And they attacked the Phocians, who instead of retreating downhill to join the Greeks in the pass, retreated uphill, uh, and waiting to die, <coughs> says Herodotus. But the Persians weren't interested in them. The Persians just marched past them went downhill to descend uh, in the rear of Leonidas's position. So that's how they get behind the, behind the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks are warned. They have scouts on the hills, and the scouts come running down. And they've also been warned by deserters from the Persian camp that there is this, um, uh, this uh, round march through the hills. And then they debate, um, should they retreat? Should they, uh, should they fight? And Leonidas decides that he and the Spartans will stay and fight. Uh, most of the others go, except for a city from central Greece, the people from Thespiae, the Thespians, and also the contingent from Thebes. Now, it's difficult to know how many are fighting there, because they must have taken losses beforehand, but made about um, a thousand people still, still uh, in, in the, uh, the pass. And, of course, the Persians massacre them. They attack them on two fronts and wipe them out to a man. Well, actually, not quite to a man. The Thebans change their mind at the last minute uh, and surrender. <clears throat> but the Spartans are killed and the Thespians are killed absolutely to a man. And that was actually in the, um, in the narrow passage? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Once the Persians are behind them, then the Persians just have to squeeze them from two, two sides. And so you've got the main army pushing from one side. You've got this group that uh, march around them pushing from the other side. And in the end, what the, um, uh, the surviving Greeks do is they retreat uphill to make it as hard as possible for the Persians to kill them. Uh, and I think to sell their lives as dearly as they can. There's, according to Herodotus, their spears break, then their swords break, and then they have daggers. And then finally, um, uh, if they don't have a dagger, they fight with their teeth. And the Persians lose patience and surround them with archers and simply shoot them down. And that's how the, uh, the battle ends. And of course, that's one of the reasons um, that it becomes legend. That courage of staying to fight when you know that um, fighting means dying is something that's made it appeal to the uh, imagination of the world for uh, two millennia, two and a half millennia. So in this particular battle, although it lasted uh, several days and the Greeks were outnumbered substantially, the Greeks eventually lost the battle. Yeah. It was a defeat, but it's one of these defeats that become a victory in retrospect, like the Alamo. Hmm. So in more of a summary fashion, because we've completed the, the part about the battle, um, what, what occurs in summary fashion in the war then, uh, after this? And what do you think were the long-term implications that this battle had on the war? The, I think the battle doesn't affect the outcome of the, the war 
in any practical sense, but I think it shows that the Persians can be beaten. Uh, and I think a lot of people must have felt that they couldn't be. It was such a large army. So I think it has Im implications for um, the possibility of victory. I think it has implications for strategy. The Persians move south, and then there is a naval encounter um, in Athenian territory just off the island of Salamis in a very narrow strait. And I think what Thermopylae proved was if you can catch a massive army in a narrow space, you rather like jujitsu, you know, you use the weight of your enemy against him. And so Salamis repeated Thermopylae, but in the process broke the, the Persian fleet. The Persians are then with that left without a fleet and they stay, they overwinter in Greece. And then there is a battle at Plataea in the next year in 479. Uh, and that is when the Persians are finally defeated. Uh, but the, the big battles are Salamis and Plataea. Thermopylae, it's not just that it's a defeat, it doesn't have an immediate practical impact. But as I say, it does have uh, implications for morale and it does have implications for strategy. Uh, and I think what the, what the Greeks do at Salamis is repeat the, the uh, use the lessons of Thermopylae. Um, Xerxes doesn't, so he, uh, he loses at, uh, mm. at Salamis. Yeah, and what it sounds like this battle en ended up doing as well is uh, living on um, quite ubiquitously in legends and uh, and uh, stories for, for many generations after. Absolutely. <laughs> this is where your 300 Spartans come in. There were a lot more there, but when you have three, 300 take on 3 million, it's, uh, it's, uh, it is a dramatic disparity. I... Uh, I, I, I uh, was chatting with a, a, a Greek person once in Greece and uh, asked him uh, uh, if uh, Odysseus, if he, if he believed Odysseus, uh, this came up in another episode too, I asked him if Odysseus uh, uh, lived and, and, he, and he said, it's not about whether he lived or not, it's about the story. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and precisely, Thermopylae becomes a myth and myths are sometimes very, very powerful. Uh, this has been a great and enjoyable conversation, Chris. Thanks for joining the show today. My pleasure. Thanks very much for in the invitation, Andrew. So again, everybody, the couple books that I referenced at the start of the episode that Emeritus Professor Carey has written as examples, Thermopylae, Great Battles, and Democracy in Classical Athens. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Chris and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you very much. Take care, all. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.